Welcome to the Three Padres and a Shepherd podcast, where three North Dakota Lutheran pastors and a real-life shepherd combine serious theology with fun laughter. This is a podcast from the local church and for the local church. However, the local churches of these three pastors do not take any responsibility for the banter, foolery, and assertions that will follow. Welcome to the Three Padres and a Shepherd podcast. How's it going, guys? You know, I'm having a great day. Can I tell you what I got for this podcast? Let's see. Look at, these, look at these wonderful things. Look at that. Can you see that on there? Those are some Radio Shack. Radio Shack headphones. I don't know where they came from, but now they're my official podcast headphones. It's pretty epic. Pretty <laughs> epic. Bo, I think Bo said you were sharing that before. Bo said you those from what, your Walkman? Yes. Yes, I think I did. I Actually, I didn't have a Walkman. I had some off-brand Walkman that was a Power Rangers Power Morpher. Nice. Yeah, you know? Yeah, so that was pretty sweet. Does Radio Shack even exist anymore? I don't know. I don't know. Pretty epic, though. How are the rest of you guys doing? Doing good. It's another beautiful day. So. Another beautiful day. Snowing. Nundorf, how's it going over there? Are you are you in rugby right now? Yes, I am. All right. Snowing over there? Yes, it is. And yeah. I'm I'm kind of in the twilight zone today because of course we observed Ash Wednesday yesterday, but being in Tripoint Parish, Ash Wednesday was at uh Emmanuel and our Saviors. Um, but today we're gonna have Ash Thursday down here okay. in rugby. Nice. <laughs> nice, nice. Did you guys catch the Super Bowl last week? No, I'm I'm a nerd. I don't watch things like sports ball. Yeah, you wonder if you watch the Super Bowl? No. Yeah, no. I've I never watched the Super Bowl. Oh man. I, I we watched it. Uh my, my whole family were were football junkies big time. Big time. So we had half of our family rooting for Kansas City and the other half uh rooting for uh the other team. Uh man, I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah 49 49ers. 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 yeah 49ers. i didn't even watch it and i knew that come on man. no i know i know my son was rooting for the 49ers and, and my wife and i were going for kansas city so yeah and then anya didn't care so well the hot so topic how much yeah. taylor swift did they have that's that's the real question you know i told my son i said i said if 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 he was old enough uh, we and we're doing a drinking game. We would have had thirteen shots by the end of the Super Bowl. <laughs> she was shown thirteen times uh, throughout the whole thing. So yeah, yeah, it was a little bit more than usual. But uh, yeah, we were counting every time she came on. My son, you know, yelled at four, five, six. <laughs> the hot so topic. You after, the hot topic after the Super Bowl is the "He Gets Us" commercial. Um, I know that uh, uh, that's been the topic of a lot of controversy lately no i did not watch the super bowl but i did watch the he gets us ad after the fact made me glad i hadn't watched the super bowl (laughs) (laughs) why are you glad you didn't watch the super bowl what didn't you like about it what didn't i like about the he gets us ad um well okay for one thing it's all ai generated art um it's kind of funny for a, a an ad campaign with that budget to go that route um and then um of course, more more concerningly, okay, we probably remember the He Gets Us campaign from, what was it, a year ago, where they've got uh, slides of Jesus washing different people's feet. So you've got Jesus washing Joe Biden's feet, Jesus washing Donald Trump's feet. So you, you know, you get uh, all sides. 
Well, this time, uh, everybody getting their feet washed are the people that uh, would be commonly regarded as uh, recipients of hate from the Christian right. So uh, the most egregious one was uh, a young woman getting her feet washed in front of an abortion clinic. And uh, this, of course, would be uh, concerning on its own, but you, you take in the whole picture. What do you got in the corner there? All those mean right-wing Christians with their placards, those protesters trying to keep people from killing their babies, whereas the good, compassionate Christian is washing the feet of the abortion vulnerable woman uh, to show her as she goes in to kill her child, we're, we're just loving on you. We just care about you. Uh, and that's how Jesus feels about you. Yes, because um, Jesus hates babies and we don't need to love them, just women. Yeah. Well, you uh, know, so what, what, what pictures, if we, had, if we were to add a couple more AI generated pictures to that, what, to balance things out, what would yeah. we add? What would we I'll add tell you it? what I would add. I would add Winston Churchill washing the feet of Adolf Hitler. And I would add Matthew Harrison washing the feet of Corey Mahler. <laughs> no, no, just just for just for those who are listening, Corey Mahler, I mean and briefly, I mean what you know people are like, well, who's that? Uh he is a neo-Nazi in Knoxville, Tennessee, who uh together with his henchman Woe in Vermont has started a podcast called Stone Choir, which presents neo-Nazi ideology uh, with a veneer of confessional Lutheranism. Uh, Didn't so you they get... are bona fide racists. They want black people resegregated to Africa, and they they hate Jews. Want Jews out of Didn't society. you? Didn't you get? Uh, didn't you get into a beef with these guys? Because I thought you got into the Rolling Stone over this. Um. <laughs> I, I, I think you're the only LCMS pastor I know that's ever been yeah. named in the Rolling Stone. <laughs> I, I was in Rolling Stone. And here's the thing that drives me nuts about that. So I didn't know I was going to be in Rolling Stone. And if Rolling Stone had contacted me, I would not have wanted anything to do with them. Uh, I regard them as my enemy and they're out to make the church look as bad as they can. Well, uh, when they reached out to Corey Mahler, he consented to an interview and uh, it's all a, an article about him and his ideology and how he's trying to uh, invade the Lutheran church. Um, and then what's happened afterwards is Mahler and his henchmen come after me for going to Rolling Stone and recruiting Rolling Stone and in, in doing the, the demonic Missouri Synod's dirty work against the neo-Nazis. I didn't want to have anything to do with Rolling Stone. <laughs> he's the one who's used it to further his neo-Nazi agenda. It's just... Uh, this stuff is really frustrating, but I will say I agree with their characterization of me. Rolling Stone referred to me as a uh, hardline, ultra-conservative Missouri Synod pastor, and yet even for me, Corey Mahler is beyond the pale. <laughs> so what so would back- what would what would uh, back to the commercial? What would a, a proper AI-generated picture of Christ look like? Well, I, I, I think I think the question, I, the the whole idea is is kind of building off that idea. My question when I was watching it was like, he gets us. My my question would be, how? I mean, it, it just it's just he gets us, right? So okay, I I can I can you know, and and the imagery is that he gets us by washing our feet. I mean, is that so? Is that how Jesus gets us? And and I understand that idea of washing feet that shows kind of a sense of sympathy, servanthood, and so forth. 
but uh, I think that needs to be expounded on more. So, so how does Jesus get us? Does he get us by washing our feet? Does he get us by being our buddy and our pal, a good friend? Is he kind of like a mascot in our corner cheering us on? I mean, how does Jesus get us? When I was in seminary, uh, a group of us malcontents put together something we call the ditch test. And uh, you can tell how bad theology is by taking what they say about Jesus and then applying it to a situation where you are in a ditch with a broken leg and you're wallowing in the sewer and muck and gunk at the bottom of the ditch. And so then what does Jesus do? Okay, well, let's take the, the He Gets This campaign. Jesus shows up. He finds you lying in the ditch with your broken leg and your filth. And what does he do? He jumps down in the ditch and he breaks his own leg and puts his arm around you and says, I got you, bro. I'm going to wash your feet and make you feel good. Don't worry about it. You're great. Well, here's the problem. You're still stuck in the bottom of a sewer-filled ditch with a broken leg. And so he gets us doesn't actually do anything for you. Well, think about this for, for a second. I mean, the, the whole idea of washing the feet, when did that happen? That happened on on Holy Thursday. We celebrate that Holy Thursday the night before. In the upper and if, room with the disciples. Right, right. now, well, if the story of the Gospels ended at that, where he does all these miracles and he washes the feet, and then all of a sudden, ta-da, you know, and that's the end of the Gospels, then maybe they might have a point, but what happens the next day? He dies yeah. for the sin of the world. He, blew, he gets bloodied up on a cross. And so there's a little bit more to the story that uh, is not being expounded upon. So, well, I mean, how, more how, of the story has to be the crucifixion, uh, but also uh, a helpful contrast with the He Gets Us campaign is to think about what actually happened in the upper room when Jesus was washing his disciples' feet. For one thing, it was limited to his band of disciples. This was not a general expression of mercy to the whole world. This was for his guys. And then, even among his guys, he washes all 12 of the apostles' feet and then says, but not all of you are clean because... Uh, Judas is among those who are getting their feet washed. In the act of washing feet, he warns the guy who's going to hell so that uh, he has one last chance to to come back. But uh, that is not present. There is no warning. There is no rebuke in the He Gets Us campaign. And most especially, there is no cross afterwards. And if there's no cross, there's no forgiveness. There's no sins being absolved, which means at the end of the day, in my little example, you're still lying in the ditch, covered in filth with your broken leg, and nothing has changed for you. Yeah, all roads lead to the cross. Has to be the cross. Otherwise, is getting us doesn't do much. So the gospel is that Christ doesn't leave us in the ditch, but actually takes our place in the ditch for us. Right. Yeah. Yep. He gets us by his shed blood. Mm-hmm. Amen. You know. You know. That's the thing that's really frustrating about this is that they they get the identification of Christ with sin to a certain point. And that's what makes this seductive because, you know, he who knew no sin became sin for us. And so there is a solidarity that comes with that. You know, Christ does know what it is to be part of the human condition because he became a man in this world full of sin. Not that he himself was a sinner, but you get what I'm saying. And uh, the problem is, though, is that they just leave it there and they don't actually bring it around to the full thing, which ultimately culminates in the forgiveness of sins and with that life and salvation which is why I give two thumbs down to the uh, He Gets Us ad campaign. Neundorf, we got thumbs down. Thumbs down and <laughs> <in> rain. <laughs> All right, so to summarize the He Gets Us, uh, the issue is they're right to a certain extent that Jesus gets us, but they don't go far enough, and it has to lead to the cross, right? I mean, it has to lead to the cross, because if there's no cross, there's no shed blood, we're still left in our sins. Amen, Amen. Amen.
All right, time for our main event. You guys good to go? Ready? You bet. how long and then let that abominable music play (laughs) i I have a very serious question um so we started off this podcast talking about neo-nazis was this music choice designed to show that we are in fact not neo-nazis is that is that why you picked it you know the music the music serves as a good transition right to transition from segments and so forth and well it uh, certainly serves as a transmission whether it's good or not is really debatable (laughs) All right, so for our main topic here, and what we're going to be doing is spend the next about 40 minutes talking about our main topic. And so the main topic is actually chosen by the elders of St. Paul's Lutheran Church. And so we have a newsletter that goes out here at St. Paul's. Uh, We choose a theme. The elders actually do that theme for the local church. And for the sake of this podcast, we're using that theme to discuss here. So uh, for those that are listening, this topic is not generated by us within the agenda whatsoever. We're going to just comment on the agenda that's... uh, from the agenda of the elders of St. Paul's. So if you have an issue with the topic, contact the elders of St. Paul's Lutheran Church. <laughs> contact Bo. He's, a, he's one of our elders, so we'll blame Bo for this. But our topic at hand is the emasculation of the church, the emasculation of the church. So let's start off by, let's start off by defining the problem, okay? So before we can even go, we, we need to, what, do we, what do we mean by the emasculation of the church? What does the word emasculation even mean? And, and so let's talk about the malady, the problem. What is the issue at hand here? Um, how does it affect the church? Where do we see it in the church? Um, so let's start by, again, identifying that problem. And then we'll talk a little bit further on on that. So how, the masculinity of the church, what do, we, what do we say about that? What's the problem? What's the issue? What is it? Uh, emasculation is uh, removal of masculinity. And uh, I think it's important to point out that that doesn't mean uh, you're moving along a trajectory with uh, masculinity on one end and femininity on the other end, and you're becoming more feminine. Uh, emasculation is a uh, corruption of and removal of that which God has appointed to make men characteristically men. So so why is that so important? I totally agree with you, Neundorf, but why is that so important not to put on the pendulum? I think, I mean, just real briefly, we think about that old movie, uh, The Sandlot, right? Uh, when when the, the boys are arguing and, de- and debating about baseball, and they're, they're, the, the two baseball teams are arguing, and they say, well, you eat boogers, and you do this, and they're back and forth bantering, and the one guy goes, well, you play baseball like a girl, and everyone goes, oh my goodness, the ultimate insult. And so, why... The neo-Nazis love to insult that way. Like, uh, they'll say, oh, women of both sexes. So, I'm a woman of the male sex, because I don't uh, adulate Adolf Hitler. Um, so womanhood shouldn't be an insult because it's good for a woman to be a woman. Um, when a man starts acting like a woman and adopting for himself, uh, those things that ought to characterize womanhood, uh, it's, it's not authentic womanhood. It's a parody. It's uh, a corruption. Um, so, we don't want to present femininity as if it's bad. Femininity, when lived out by women, by those appointed by God to 
uh, embody femininity is good, a good creation of God, and has much to offer the church. And in fact, the church ought to have, relative to her Lord and head, certain feminine qualities. But when we're talking about the emasculation of the church, uh, we're not talking about authentic femininity. We're talking about men shirking their duty as men, uh, men uh, adopting a corruption of, a parody of what it is to be a woman. Well, I think there's a, another fundamental reason we have to reject the idea that these two things are kind of attached on opposite poles of a gradient. And that is the idea that gender is, in fact, a spectrum. You know, it's not a spectrum. Male is male. Female is female. Um, and those two things are distinct and they are different and they're whole separate categories. And so, you know, we don't agree with the uh, the idea of the secular culture that there's a pole of gender and one side of the pole is, you know, male and the other side is female and you can be anywhere along the line. There's two separate camps. And, uh, you know, the offense of transgenderism is that you try to transgress your boundary and move from one camp to the other. You know, there's maybe a gradient of masculinity in terms of its expression inside of that wheelhouse. You know, there's some men who are more bookish and other men who are more, you know, macho and this kind of thing. That doesn't necessarily mean that they are less manly. And I guess maybe gradient isn't the right word for that. But right, there's variance within that camp. But there's either you're in that camp and you're a man or you're outside of that camp and you're emasculated. And we could say the same thing about women. And so I don't think that it's a good idea that we, we would concede anything to the people that would argue that there's some kind of a gender spectrum, that that's just, that's just not how we see it. That's not what Genesis says. Male and female, he made them. It doesn't say he made one person who was some kind of, you know, simultaneously both genders that somehow became divided into two, and it's cool to be in the middle somewhere. We're not ancient Greek pagans, you know? Mm-hmm. The other thing I, I think of is that, that God creates man and woman and says they're both good, and the female qualities... The, the qualities that females possess or, ma- or femininity is good and masculinity is good. That doesn't mean that there's no overlap there. There's times where women are called upon to be courageous and bold and, and stand strong and firm. Um, and there's time where men are called to, uh, to tie the shoelaces of their kids and, and, and be uh, attentive to their needs. Um, but I think where it's corrupt is when, when, when we corrupt masculinity is when you come to a point where, where femininity can no longer submit to it, when femininity can no longer say, this is good and I trust this and I'm willing to follow this. And that's where, that's where the church plays a feminine role to the masculine role of Christ. So, so is the question that the church has been emasculated or is, I think what we'll work towards is the fact that Christ has been emasculated to where the church can no longer submit to him and his authority. So, so we're, we're defining, again, there's, there's not a pendulum where emasculation is the movement from the masculine to the feminine. And again, I think that's extremely important. Otherwise, we make feminine bad and masculine good. And that's not what we're saying. So, so emasculation is the, well, can we say it this way? Because I think the word emasculation in its archaic use is, is to castrate. I mean, that's, that's literally the archaic use of it. It's to castrate and emasculate the man and to deprive of strength and to deprive of the role of the masculine. So, okay. So then I think Bo, Bo hit this pretty, pretty, pretty profound here. If we look at like, for instance, uh, Ephesians talks about husbands and wives and it says, husbands, 
love your wives as Christ, um, you know, loves the church. And so we see Christ as the bridegroom and the masculine, and the church is always talked about in the femininity in the, uh, as, as a her or she. And so we look at that, that balance, or I don't know if I would say balance, but how they serve the, the, the Christ is the masculine serving, dying, bleeding, uh, providing for feeding the feminine church. But I think what Bo pointed out is huge. Do, do, do we say that it's the church that's emasculated or is it when we emasculate Christ that we have problems? What do you guys think? Both, Both. Uh, but in, in different respects. Um, so the church is called to be feminine relative to Christ. The church submits to Christ. Christ does not submit to the church. Christ dies for the church. The church does not die for Christ. Um, nevertheless, within the church, um, there are men and women, and men, as they relate to women in the church and in society, are to uh, maintain masculinity um, and not. Uh, another th- uh, thing that's flitted into my head here is that um, femininity is good, but uh, even men uh, exercising what are typically seen as um, uh, feminine traits, compassion, nurturing, and so on. It's good to do that in the right situation, but there are a lot of situations where that's not called for. We need to embody exclusively masculine traits, and in the pastoral office, that's uh, uh, especially critical today. Um, So the, the church needs to be feminine relative to Christ, but that doesn't mean feminine relative to the world. And um, that's a great point within the church. We're all feminine relative to Christ, but we maintain our creative distinctions within the, the church as we relate to one another. Have that's you, a great point. Have you noticed the, um, what do I want to say? That there's a certain level of expectation these days that pastors be impotent, cowardly, pushovers. I ran into this recently, and I don't want to get into the details of the situation, but I stood my ground on an issue, and the people I was dealing with were just completely bamboozled by this, completely flummoxed, because they're not used to clergymen or clergy people. I guess we have to be inclusive these days. Clergy persons. Clergy persons standing their ground, right? They, they, don't, they don't expect that. They expect you to crumple and fold. Um, it, one of the critiques I often hear as a, as a confessional Lutheran pastor is, oh, you're kind of harsh. You know, you, you have very straightforward law. You expect things of people. Why can't you just like let everyone get along and be friends and kumbaya? Well, because scripture doesn't allow me to do that, right? And, and one of my duties as a pastor is to, you know, be the under shepherd to the shepherd, to paternally care for my congregation. And sometimes that means you have to discipline. Sometimes that means you have to, you know, rebuke. And uh, that's just a very foreign way for people to understand mm-hmm. the church and the role of the pastor these days, particularly now because we have, you know, a lot of women who, who inhabit pulpits. And so people have lost the idea that there's a paternal element to the, the office of pastor. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I was in a previous denomination for uh, about 10 years. And, and uh, in the nature and the course of those churches, I would say that they had a very much a, a feminized view of the pastor. And Serenity, my wife, has mentioned this to me. She said, when you became in the Missouri Senate, you changed drastically. You're more like that. Uh, that little bit of that unruly 15, 16-year-old, you know, boy that I, I met in high school. 
and uh, a little bit more uh, crass, a little bit more rough around the edges uh, per se, which, okay, there's, there's probably downfalls of that too. But she, she made an observation once. She said, when you would pray in a previous denomination, you'd always have an airy, an airy uh, wisp in your voice, a very airy wisp in your voice. And, and your demeanor was always very sheepish. Uh, she said, now uh, you've gotten back to the point where you pray uh, in your voice, very firm, very confident, um, and, and you, you base it on doctrine. Uh, it's, what, what is, what, what, it's not what does God's word mean to you when we kind of you know, search our inner emotions to kind of contemplate, but it's, this is what God's word says. It's much more definitive and so forth. And so I think that does flush its, you know, it flushes out in the church uh, when you have uh, more of a femininity. I, no, I shouldn't say femininity. No, see there again, I'm going on that pendulum, right? So I, so I, I, I need I to correct just... myself on that. The more of the emasculated, pardon me on that, uh, the, the, the more the emasculated approach. See how easy that is to do, right? To go that I pendulum. Would... You know, I was well, just going to push back against you yeah, there. So yeah. what you're describing is not feminine. You're describing yeah. emasculation. Yep, thank you. So yep, we, yep. Let's, let's talk about the Jesus from the commercial here just a few minutes ago. So you have a Jesus who is, if my kids were to fall into sin, does my wife accept them as how they are? Or does she rebuke them the same way that I would? She, she is not weak. She is not... Um, She's not tolerant or accepting of, of when the kids are doing something harmful to themselves. She is bold. That doesn't make her the leader of the household, but, but, but emasculated preaching, emasculated um, the pulpit emasculated does not look like a feminized Jesus. It looks like a neutered Jesus. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so when I first became a pastor. Uh, I wanted to be a bold confessor. I wanted to be the strong masculine pastor. I wanted to reflect the masculinity of Christ to my people. But I thought that what most of my people probably wanted was an emasculated pastor um, who is not going to challenge them, um, who's going to coddle them. Um, now, this particularly becomes an issue with uh, funerals when you, when you've got people who are dealing with a really stressful time in life, they're dealing with grief and stress and it's just awful. Um, so I thought early on that what people wanted from me in those situations was uh, empathy was uh, weeping with them, uh, showing them how deeply affected I am by this too. So that there's, oh, he, he gets me. He understands me. He's, he's experiencing this with me. And I think a lot of people might say that is what they want in a pastor. But what experience has borne out is that that's not what anybody really wants in a pastor. Um, so if the pastor falls down on the job, the funeral director becomes the source of stability because that's what you need in that season of life. You need stability. You need a rock. You need someone who's strong for you. You need not someone who's weeping with you, but a shoulder to cry on. Um, and uh, I feel like I'm at my best as a pastor serving the community when I'm not consumed with emotion myself. Uh, yes, I, I understand. Yes, I'm, I want to be compassionate, but I'm there to provide the rock solid word of God and not just the word of God in general, but the, the traditional scriptures that you use in these situations 
I'm confident about the order of things. I'm confident about what we do next. I'm giving that stability. And that's what people really want deep down in a pastor. Uh, and that's what we should be giving. And that's that's masculinity. Uh, not saying that uh, women can't embody stability, but uh, that is a masculine quality. So uh, when, when a woman provides that kind of stability, she's... Uh, doing something that is uh, most especially associated with masculinity. When a man does it, that's what he's created to do. Uh, so we want a Jesus. We ought to have a Jesus who doesn't change to meet our needs, but who gives us stability, the rock-solid, uh, steady Word of God. You know, maybe a way of, of helping point this out would be John chapter 10, right? And we think about Jesus as the good shepherd and the hired hand, right? And uh, I think this is excellent. So so the whole point of what makes Jesus good is that he cares for the sheep, right? And so we can see this in this imagery where we have the picture of the good shepherd and the sheep. And you, you'll have an aspect of Jesus where he maybe is holding that sheep and you get many pictures like that. And we would say, well, that's very endearing. That's good. Okay. So there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, there's definitely compassion for the sheep. But then if you look at John 10, what makes him so good is that he what? He doesn't run like a hired hand who cares not for the sheep. And so right there between the hired hand and the good shepherd in the face of wolves, right? The wolf of death, we could just allegorize that. The wolf of death, you have the good shepherd who is willing to stand between the sheep and between the sheep and the wolf to lay his life down, to sacrifice his life for the sheep where the hired hand is emasculated, right? I mean, the hired hand sees the wolf and he goes running. He's a coward. Yeah, he's a coward. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, so basically in that hired hand, that's what we're displaying. That's what we're displaying of what emasculation is. It's the weakness of failing to do what one ought to for the sake of loving another. Well, and you've been to funerals like that, haven't you? Where the preacher will stand up and they have a lot of stories about so-and-so's life they have precious little to say about the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the body. Precious yeah. little. And that is absolutely cowardly and it is absolutely emasculated. And uh, would that all preachers would stand in the pulpit at a funeral and proudly and boldly proclaim the triumph of Christ over sin, death, and the grave. You know, one of the one of the best funerals I've ever been at, uh, when I was down in Southeast North Dakota, uh, Reverend Sean Danzer, he's a... Uh, uh, a wonderful pastor. Uh, he's director of worship now for our Missouri Synod. He he had a sermon about laughing at death. That was his whole theme. Today we today we laugh at death, and it was about how we're supposed to laugh at death. Now I, I kid you not, this was so powerful. After we went to the graveside, the son of the mom that passed away, he stood by the grave with his boy. So it would have been the son of the one the lady that died and the grandchild. And he put his arm around his little boy. And I'm watching this from the distance. I was attending as a guest. He said, son, let's laugh at death. And they looked into the dark grave because they lowered the casket in. And the dad started laughing. And the son started laughing as they pointed down. And uh, laughing at death because what? Our Jesus is going to raise this body from the dead on the great last day. And there, there again, that's that confidence of not uh, skirting around death and not even mentioning death. And that's the power when you have a real Christ, right? A, a real Christ who does real things, who can accomplish uh, the resurrection, bleeding and dying and rising. 
then you can look at the big, big, scary death itself. And you don't have to what tell stories and skirt around the issue and pretend it doesn't exist like a hired hand. And I think it's a huge point that that this flushes itself out in the theology. So what is the sting of death? According to St. Paul, the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. So the way Jesus deals with death is by dealing with sin, fulfilling the law, forgiving our sins. What are the implications do we see of this? We, we, We defined it happening in funerals. What are the implications do we see this playing out, the emasculated Christ in the church or in the vocation of family as it flows out? Well, I'll give you one from the church. I You see it in open communion, right? When pastors refuse to do their job and actually examine people before they come to the Lord's Supper. And I know someone's going to say, oh, well, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, he's talking about examining yourself. Yeah, I get that. But it's in the context of Paul having instructed everybody in the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. And the examination we do as individuals is in light of what we have first been given by our pastors. Anyways, long story short is, is that we have a lot of guys who just don't want the confrontation. So they just don't ask the question. They don't, you know, do their job. They don't stand up and speak the truth of the scriptures on this matter. When I think of when I think of the implications of it in the church, um, the Jesus that's described in culture, the Jesus that's described in the emasculated church, I I think I'd have a hard time even being a friend with him because. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't have a beer with uh, with uh, Jesus with no I, no man bits. <laughs> well, I, I I don't even know if we could be buddies. And but that's not I'm, a, I'm not even looking for a boyfriend Jesus. I'm not looking for a buddy Jesus. But I couldn't even be friends with the guy because he's he's uh, uh, he doesn't exude any of the traits that I look for in in my in the men that I go through my day to day with. I don't he know that I can trust as, him. He's pathetic. He's pathetic, yeah. So, but that isn't the Jesus of Scripture. The Jesus of Scripture spoke to the wind and the waves, and yeah. and and put them in their place. Uh, the Jesus of Scripture, he wept. That's the uh, Jesus wept is the only Bible verse I've actually committed to memory. But it didn't <laughs> stop there. I mean, he uh, that isn't where that story ends. You know, he he speaks and he. He uh, he expresses the image of God in a way that 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 not only would I the the true Christ not only would I not be able to be friends with the false Christ, but I would actually serve and respect and submit to the biblical Christ. So what you're saying is, is if we really want to be men, our standard is not the guy that's got the lift kit in his truck and a big old rubber pair of truck nuts dangling off the receiver <laughs> hitch, right? The, the way we learn what it is to be a man is we look to Christ. We look he to Christ. He is the man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and we mm-hmm. see that in his sacrificial death, right? I did not come to be served, but to serving him a life as a ransom for many that he what? He blades, he dies, he serves, he mm-hmm. suffers for the other, for us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Nundorf, any, anything to add on, on like what Bo is saying about, you know, you know, respecting, uh, you know, it's difficult to respect an emasculated Christ versus respecting Christ for who he is. I mean, is this at work? Maybe perhaps one of the reasons why 
maybe not only for for men but for women that uh, maybe a lack of church attendance because it's like why show up for a boyfriend or girlfriend kind of Jesus? Uh, I've been thinking about dancing um, and not the not the obnoxious parody of dance that you have with that would accompany music like you played to introduce this segment. But so we're not um, talking TikTok dances here. Talking ballroom dancing, uh, which can be a very masculine undertaking because uh, you know, for a woman to have a, a satisfying experience in dance, she needs a man who's willing to lead. And if the man can't lead on the dance floor, that leaves the woman uh, frustrated, unfulfilled, mm-hmm. unsatisfied. Um, I think I think I talked about this with you guys uh, in a different context yesterday. Uh, the wife of Bath's Tale from the Canterbury Tales, uh, Chaucer, mm-hmm. where uh, the, the whole story boils down to the, the big revelation that what women most want in the world is sovereignty and marriage. They want to rule over their husbands. And I think uh, that's true if you consider the curse on the woman in the Garden of Eden. Uh, the curse on the woman is that she's going to want to master her husband, but he's going to rule over you. Uh, so that may be what sinful fallen woman wants, thinks she wants, but when you find it, you don't like it. Mm-hmm. Don't respect this guy. You're not happy with a guy that you can push around. And I think the same is true when we consider our Christ. Are we really happy with a Christ who just gets us, who washes our feet in order to tell us that everything's okay, we're okay, we don't need to change, he doesn't expect anything of us, he just wants to love on us. Uh, Even those who think that they want a Christ like that, I think are into a bitter disappointment. If that's our Christ, we should expect to be bleeding sheep all over the place. <laughs> well, maybe to, maybe to summarize, maybe to summarize this whole point, I heard it once said that uh, never worship a Jesus that you can beat up. I mean, really, I mean that's kind of, <laughs> that's kind of a sense what we're saying. Now, to, to push the conversation a little bit down the road, um, let's let's shift to this kind of context here and thinking about this. How does this happen? Or I guess maybe what are the steps in creating an emasculated Christ? I mean. We've covered kind of the effect of it, but but perhaps why does it happen and how how is Christ emasculated? And then as Christ is emasculated, how how is the church emasculated in its in its you know in its proper sense and its improper sense? Okay, so let's kind of talk about the means. Okay, so how does this happen uh, to erode this on Christ and then and how it works itself out in the church? So that our our listeners can kind of maybe when they they spot this happening, they say, oh, look, I see this at work. I call the low hanging fruit here of, you know, higher criticism. Okay, explain that. Explain (laughs) that. What do you mean? What do you you mean by? When you you stop taking Christ at his word and you stop letting him tell you who he is and you substitute for that things you want him to be. Well, at some point you rob him of himself and he is the man, the true man. And so by necessity, you take away some of his masculine traits, his masculine self. Um, in other words, you know, when you substitute a myth for the truth, right, you you end up uh, losing the truth, which is Christ in his real person. So 
you know, higher criticism for, for those who are unaware is the idea. And this is, I'm, I'm oversimplifying this to a fault here, but higher criticism is the idea that our human reason is above scripture. And therefore we can use our reason to decide the things that are true and not true in the Bible. And so when we run into something that we don't like, then we just go, Hey man, you know, that part's not reasonable. We don't have to believe it. And you ignore it. And people do this sort of thing with a lot of stuff Jesus says, because some of it's really, really hard and demands sacrifice. So it's a lot easier just to downplay those bits of scripture. Maybe maybe could we say this simply? Um, maybe we could say simply that we 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 have Christ as master. And so we have this, this metaphor of of shepherd sheep. We have potter clay. We have master servant. We have um, all of those imageries. And so we have Christ up here above us and we're below. But our natural tendency is to do what we did in the Garden of Eden in, in, in Genesis 3. We want we want to elevate ourselves up to that level of the Creator. But then but then we don't stop there. We want to take our Lord and reduce him and put him underneath us and put him on a leash and a collar. And then we drag Jesus around where we want. So we want to invert it. So instead of having creator created we want to invert it that we are in that role of that creator and we reduce Jesus to nothing more than a lapdog. And then once we reduced him to a lapdog, well, he's emasculated. Thoughts, Neudorf and Bo on that? Well, I, I was just going to say, I think that it, what you're describing and with the higher criticism, what you're describing is, is a failure to recognize the condition of man. It's a failure to, oh, recognize, a failure to recognize depravity. So if we are not dead in trespasses and sin, if, if, if we don't deserve death, if, if we just need a moral example Jesus or a uh, uh, cheerleader Jesus, a Christ that doesn't go to the cross, then if, if, we, if we need something besides a Savior to pull us up out of the ditch and put himself in the ditch for us, then we can turn Christ into whatever we so choose. I got a quick question for you, Bo. Every time you make an allusion to Richard's book, do you get paid? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, I, I say I, I can't don't... read, so I, I just have an audio book of that one. So it's on, on cassette, but I can't listen to it because I lost the headphones that'll still plug in. So you know, if I can you know, borrow your headphones. If I sell three books, I can probably make three bucks. I'll buy each a soda, right? I, I got mad. I, I actually bought one of his books from the church for, for a friend. It was like 15 bucks at the church. And I go onto Amazon, they're like $5. <laughs> you could probably find a couple at a garage sale for like a two yeah, bucks. Yeah. No. <laughs> Nudor, you, what, what do you have to add on this here? Bo, if you, Bo mentions, if you, Bo mentions uh, Christ as example as opposed to Christ as Redeemer. Um, and I do think it's worth. Uh, pointing out that, yes, uh, Christ saves us by being our Redeemer. He saves us by dying for us. He doesn't save us by leading by example. Nevertheless, he does call us to follow his example. He calls us to pick up our cross and follow him. Um, and I, I think back to um, uh, the early origins of what developed into the pietistic controversy. That would be uh, Johann Arndt and his uh, beautiful devotional classic, True Christianity, uh, which is not pietist. True Christianity is confessional Lutheranism of that age, uh, approved by uh, Johann, Johann Gerhard, um, beloved by many in the early Missouri Synod. Um, so true Christianity, 
says, okay, everybody wants to uh, teach what Christ teaches and uh, show how pure your doctrine is, but nobody wants to take up his cross and follow Jesus and use him as an example. Um, if, if we are to be a masculine church in the sense that it is appropriate under God for us to be, we are feminine relative to Christ. We receive redemption from him. We submit to him. We follow him. Uh, but operating in the world, if we're going to have a good example of masculinity, it needs to be Jesus. Jesus is our example that we follow, not that we may be saved, but that we may live as he has called us to live. Um, so, okay, the example of masculinity that I want to follow is Arnold Schwarzenegger in Predator, which to me is the pinnacle of the expression of authentic masculinity as far as flesh can go in recognizing it. Uh, you can kill anything. If it, if it bleeds, we can kill it. Uh, you can you can take on any enemy. Um, and then even when he's bereft of all of his equipment, when he's jungle Arnold, oh man, that is so satisfying. And I, w- I want to be like that. But that's not quite that's not quite the Christian ideal of masculinity. You can't picture Jesus uttering a clever one-liner when he overcomes Satan. He's he's not Jesus doesn't say stick around. Jesus <laughs> conquers. Um, and it, it may not it may not resonate with a lot of people, but um, I think maybe a, a better example of Christ-like masculinity we find in believe it or not the the film version of To Kill a Mockingbird with Gregory Peck when the the racist spits in his face. When I first saw that, oh, what is he going to do? Mm-hmm. He's going to have a clever one-liner like Arnold would have. He's going to punch him. He's going to do something. But he he stands firm and he wipes the spit off his glasses. He doesn't leave the the defilement in place, but he he embodies a firm resolve and he refuses to budge at the uh, provocation offered to him. And I think about Jesus, who opened not his mouth, um, who as a lamb before its shears is silent, uh, went to the cross. Um, that doesn't mean Jesus was a wimp. doesn't mean he was easy to overcome. He had 10,000 legions of angels at his disposal in the Garden of Gethsemane. They were terrified of him, but he laid down his life. He allowed himself to uh, do what had to be done to redeem the world. So you and have... Go ahead. Sorry. I, I was going to say you embody have, a God-pleasing masculinity when we follow Jesus. You have Arnie. I, I'm a big fan of John Wayne. He's my go-to. I like, I like my Westerns. And, you know, one of the things about the old cowboy Westerns is for a long time, the good guy puts up with a lot of crap from the bad guys. They spit on him. They mock him. You know, they uh, they go after him and he just sits there and takes it until his hand is forced. And then he puts on his six shooter and goes and sets things right. But it's only as a last resort. And that always left an impression on me. You know, you just had to uh, you have to you have to sometimes do things as a man. You have to fight. But, you know, the idea that a man raises his fists and strikes out as the first reaction, that's childishness. That's not masculinity. That's not being a man because men are in control. Right. Well, this is kind of kind of bringing us to to start. You know how we say wrap this up, but kind of kind of crystallize 
perhaps what how would we define true masculinity and, and we've already kind of opened that with with looking at Christ and and I think maybe perhaps just for the sake of a little bit of conversation here how would we how would we contrast like the Christ from maybe perhaps tyranny right uh, somebody who I would say that somebody who is emasculated goes the way of tyranny because they're self-serving versus Christ in his truest sense is to serve and to empty himself. Uh, maybe let's contrast that a little bit and then and then start rounding this out so that we can then see maybe perhaps a a, a biblical uh, godly view which we've already been unpacking but let's 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 flesh that out. What does it what does a church also look like where you have Christ as he truly is from the scriptures, what does that do for the church? How does that bring about health? Well, three or four questions there, but you can see the direction I'm going there. <laughs> well, Christ in the church is 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 uh, he is serving. He's he's a servant to the church. He's not didn't come to to be served, but to serve. And so, masculinity, the masculinity exemplified by Christ is that he serves the church and that that we in the church receive and then as men in the church serve our families and take that forward and when that's stripped away as the Christ who serves as opposed to needs served that's done in the pulpit that's done by preaching and not the blame doesn't fall squarely there because that's a lot of times what people are clamoring for people seek out for themselves those who will tickle their ears and it's it's less scary to have a it's less scary to have a Jesus that in loving you doesn't call you to repentance doesn't point to where sin leaves us and what our condition is um but those are words we want to hear and not words that we need to hear is it worth unpacking what we mean by the word love you know, we keep talking That's, about, yep, about let's love. Go to love. And, yep. And, uh, you know, it strikes yep. me, you know, if I was to be put on the spot and say, what does love look like? Well, Jesus says, um, no greater love is there than this, that a man should lay down his life for his friends. So, what does it mean to love in practical terms? Well, number one, it costs you something. Right, it doesn't. It doesn't come free. And the second thing is, it doesn't. It isn't emotion, but it's a verb that actually seeks good for other people. And by good, I don't mean what you like. I mean that which is objectively good. You know. And so, what I often like to tell people when they ask me that question um, is that you know, love is by definition seeking the objectively good for others at cost to oneself. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it's not. It's not this squishy thing that we so often take it to be. Mm-hmm. And an old professor always used to say in his uh, cool, cool professor, uh, Brad Sinks, and his name is, and uh, really respected that guy. He'd always say, gentlemen, for God so loved the world that he did not have a fuzzy. And uh, he was over and over, gentlemen. What's a God- fuzzy? Well, that's <laughs> that was his old point. You know, God did not have a fuzzy. And then he, he paused. He said, your, your God gave, you know, your God gave to you. And no, seriously, what's know, a fuzzy? I don't know. He's just, it was just it's this ethereal, fuzzy, emotive feeling. I mean, his whole point was that that love, love is actually that kind of that 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 idea of a verb that something is given. But I think what you stated there is is profound that it's a giving at a cost to oneself, right? It's a giving and emptying uh, with perhaps could we say this? It's a giving with suffering. I mean, because that's what happens when you when you when you lose your giving of yourself, you lose, you suffer. 
but you're, you're, you're serving outward to your, to your neighbor. How'd you build on this new endorph? Anything to add on this? Love wants the highest good for the beloved. Hmm. And uh, love is not content for the beloved to fall short of the glory of God. So love wants the beloved to have the full experience of blessedness that uh, God has appointed for us in being made in his image and embodying his goodness. So uh, a, a counterfeit Christ, an emasculated Jesus who uh, washes the feet of everyone mired in sin without once warning them uh, of the peril they face, is not loving them as God loves. But the Jesus who warns Judas, not all of you are clean. The Jesus who goes to the cross to redeem the world is raising us up, restoring the image of God in us, and uh, securing for his beloved the highest good. And that's how we should love others. So how did how did Christ exemplify? We so we we keep pointing to Christ as the 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 masculine the pinnacle of masculinity. So how did Christ love his bride, the church? He he kept her from being corrupted. He overturned tables and chased out people giving false or or teaching incorrectly, teaching people to look inward. He he. He called the Pharisees out for their self-righteousness. He, um, he gave people law when they needed to hear law, and he gave people the sweet gospel when they needed to hear gospel. Um, the, the, the Christ of Scripture was bold to confess the truth that we find in him. Yeah. Mark says that uh, when he looked at the rich young man, he loved him. Mm-hmm. And it is then that he gave him the harshest dose of the medicine of the law. Yep. He mm-hmm. said, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Uh, he didn't give him that dose to, dis- to for the purpose of discouraging him. He didn't give him that dose because he hated him. He gave him that dose because he loved him and he knew that's what he needed. Um, and then when the Philippian jailer comes to Paul in terror... Uh, what must I do to be saved? Uh, Paul, as a minister of Jesus, knows what his beloved needs, knows the medicine that is appropriate in that uh, time and place. And he gives them, uh, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your household, and you will be saved. Jesus gives us the dose we need out of love for us, even if that dose is harsh law. Pastor Bradmeyer, how do we sum summarize everything we've talked about? I mean, how would, how would just to, to summarize... You know, put a put a nice Bratemeyer bow on this. <laughs> I want to go away feeling good about uh, yeah, myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're muted. I, I think you're muted there. You learn how to run this application. I'm sorry. I don't know who did this. I blame Richard. He's touching <laughs> buttons over there. Uh, <laughs> make make me feel it, good. Put, put a, yeah, put a big bow on this for us. You want a bow on this? You should have asked Neuendorf. He's a lot better at being eloquent than I am. <laughs> but, you know, I guess here's our takeaway, right? Christ is the man, you know, behold the man. <laughs> Anyways, he's the man. And so he does what he says all of us should do, but he does it to a perfect and profound degree. 
he lays down his life to save us. And that is the sacrifice that earned for us that which is objectively good in the most perfect and eternal sense, which is the forgiveness of sins and with that life and salvation. And so then all of us men, out of thanksgiving to God for this great gift and sacrifice, well, we should go do likewise, sacrifice for our families and seek what's objectively good, reject which is found counterfeit and false and pretends to be that. And uh, this, is, this is the mandate we've been given as men in Christ. This is us going and doing likewise and picking up our cross. And again, not to earn salvation or to you know buy God off with our good works, but because he's already done it for us. Yeah, and we can agree that Christ that we've talked about here, that's one I where can, I we can, can respect submit, that one. I can yep. submit to that Christ. Yep, me too. Yep, that Christ is our Lord. All right, member letters. Speaking of emasculation. <laughs> I got to say that is the best transition I think I've ever seen going from that with that music right into Bradamire, Reverend Bradamire. What do you got? You picked that out yourself, Bradamire? That's awesome. Yeah. No, yeah. Richard inflicted this on me. That's what yeah. happened. And I got to say, music. the best part of the transition music is watching Neuendorf's face. That is, <laughs> that is the best part. <laughs> you are, a, you are an open book, friend, and it's delightful. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you have for us for uh, members, or, or excuse me, uh, uh, parishioner letters? All right. So here is a letter for you people. Uh, <clears throat> Dear 3P1S, can you explain Psalm 137, verse 9? All right, so in order that we all know what we're talking about, I do you want me to read the whole psalm or just the last couple verses? I'd say just briefly a couple verses there. All right, so I'm going to read 7 through 9 um, of, the, of the 137th psalm. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. And so the verse that's in question here, verse 9, is blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. So this would be, we call an imprecatory psalm. What do, what do we mean by that, an imprecatory psalm? Uh, calling upon God to curse his enemies and your enemies. So to smite the wicked. You know, I've, 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 I have a couple stats on this. It says that in our Psalms, uh, 42% of the Psalms are lament, 39% are praise, 10% are wisdom, uh, royal are 5% and historical are 4%. I don't have imprecatory, but my question is, you know, we have praise and worship bands, but uh, I think we should maybe develop an imprecatory band, right? You have a praise and worship band? I think we could have an imprecatory band, right? The early Lutheran church had no problem with using imprecatory themes in hymnody. And an example of that would be a couple of stanzas that used to be attached to the hymn. Oh, my goodness. Are those balloons for your birthday, Matt? Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. How those Yeah, I mean, that's, we're talking about isn't that great? Imprecatory psalms and balloons just go. go. <laughs> if I do a, a rabbit ears, the balloons go up. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> celebrating so, that Richard's halfway to the grave already. That's right. Um, I'm one step there. closer to the grave. Think of all the food you'll save. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, okay. Lord, keep us steadfast in thy word uh, and smite the murderous Pope and Turk. So, so uh, we, we used to have two additional stanzas to that. And they started out, uh, destroy their counsels, Lord our God, and smite them with an iron rod and make them fall into the snare which for thy people uh, they prepared. Um, just fantastic. But that's imprecatory in spirit. And that used to be sung like weekly throughout mm-hmm. the Lutheran church. You want to meet an even more extreme version of that. Uh, so the hymn, um, a, a Lamb Goes Uncomplaining Forth. Has anybody ever noticed the the tune name, the German tune name for that hymn, A Lamb Goes Uncomplaining Forth? It's An Wasserflüssen Babylon, which comes from the opening verse of Psalm 137, By the Waters of Babylon, There We Sat Down and Wept. So the tune originated with this hymn, with a version of Psalm 137, and it was sung all over the place for years. Um, so... It actually includes this uh, final curse. And uh, if you'll indulge me, Matt can then edit this out at a later stage. But <laughs> I'll, I'll uh, presume to sing the concluding stanza of this hymn. Thou daughter foul of Babylon, condemned to devastation, how richly blessed shall be the one who gives thee compensation for all thine overweening pride and renders unto thee in kind as thou to us hast rendered. Blessed he who binds thy little ones and dashes them against the stones. Thou shalt not be remembered. Amen. So, can you Beautiful. imagine if we were still the sort of Lutheran church that could sing that? Uh, somehow our Lutheran fathers didn't see a contradiction between that and our compassionate, loving, gospel-centered Lutheran faith. Hmm. So so is it a fair thing to say that, that a lot of the discomfort that comes from this with people so much so that this this is one of the psalms that didn't make it into our Lutheran service book. Um, is it because we have so bought into an emasculated Christ that we couldn't possibly imagine praying to God to destroy those who have done wrong to us? Is it is it right and Christian to not hate the things God hates? Um, well, I will ask sincerely, does our hate for the things that God hates extend to the children of his enemies and ours? Uh, Would it be in keeping with evangelical truth to pray sincerely on our parts that God would slay the little ones of, say, um, a militant Islam or something like that? So I guess then uh, that's the question, right? How do we understand this as Christians? So are we allowed to do that? Well, you know, bringing this to the Old Testament, you know, we see this happening, obviously, in the Old Testament, right? Uh, where, where there are these wars and so forth, and, and then whole, uh, whole people groups are wiped out. And, and 
it, it goes against our modern sensibility. But when we understand that you have these other people groups that are standing in opposition to the promised gospel. Now, keep in mind, the whole Old Testament is that uh, lineage and that promise of that seed of Christ from Genesis 3 all the way to Christ. And so <clears throat> when we understand that a nation or even like, look, for instance, like David and Goliath, right? Uh, that Goliath is an offspring uh, seed in a sense of of the devil, and and it's 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 a cosmic battle between uh, David and the lineage of Christ versus uh, the forces of evil, and the forces of evil wanting to snuff out salvation, uh, to snuff out this lineage of Christ, and that puts in a whole different perspective that the Lord God is not going to tolerate anyone coming in conflict with this wonderful grace, the forgiveness of sins for all of mankind, to redeem all mankind. And so part of that, I would say that that, that we struggle with in our culture, it's, it's, it's putting a line between good and evil. We, 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 we have a tough time drawing that firm line between good and evil. I mean, Jesus does this all the time. Uh, he, he puts a line. In fact, I mean, the Pharisees, they take Jesus and they, they call him, uh, they, they make him out to be a demon. They try to put him on the other side of the line to discredit him. Uh, and so I think our culture right now, in the name of tolerance, we 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 don't like having firm lines. We like to have everything mushy and and on a on a subjective subjective scale that can move back and forth, but to have definitive lines between good and evil, which do exist. Uh, that there is definitive lines. I think that would be a good place to start to understand that there are lines, that there is good, that there is evil, and that evil wants to what seek, kill, and destroy our faith and to wreak havoc, uh, destroy. And there's a sense where it's godly and good to be against evil. I would I would also uh, add to the equation on this too, that um, if nothing else, this imprecatory psalm serves as an example for us of how to pray when you're really, really, really ticked off about something. Uh, God already knows that you are angry. In fact, maybe even hateful of somebody or something. You might as well talk to him about it. You're not fooling him by pretending like you aren't. And uh, if nothing else, I think this is a psalm that gives us permission to talk about these things with our Father in our prayers. Could we, could we say, to kind of summarize this uh, in a sense, uh, that if you have an emasculated Christ, it's difficult to synthesize that with this psalm. But if you have Christ as he is and understand the church in that respect, then this psalm is a little bit un- more easy to understand. Maybe build off that Noondorf or maybe uh, adjust what I just said there. Well, uh, I want to be real clear on what the psalm is doing, what it isn't doing. What it is doing is recognizing the supreme evil of Babylon. Babylon destroyed the holy city, destroyed the temple of God, uh, and presumably did this to the Israelites, uh, killed their little ones. Um, The psalmist is not praying directly for the little ones of the uh, Babylonians to be killed. But he is saying, blessed is he who's going to do this. Uh, Blessed shall be you who repays you with what you've done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the stones. Uh, And the fact is that's going to happen. Um, The Medes and Persians are going to come in and and destroy Babylon. They are going to be repaid. And Cyrus is blessed. He's the anointed, uh, in a way. The term Christ, uh, lowercase c, applies to Cyrus. And he, he comes in and does this. So uh, this is a recognition of the just judgment of God upon a nation, upon a community, which stands against him and against his people. Um, but um, I, I do think um, this is not a direct request from God to destroy children. 
Um, but we also have to keep in mind that there was a divine command to destroy children in the promised land. That was a ban that was in effect um, as the, the bloodline of the, of the Christ was being maintained through the centuries. Now that the Christ has come, there is no such ban in effect. Uh, we can embody the spirit of this. God's enemies are my enemies. But uh, Christians, I don't think, would in sincerity ask God to destroy the children of their enemies. Uh, we would seek the, the salvation and eternal blessedness of the children of our enemies. But the, the spirit of this psalm needs to be uh, part of our Christian experience. Uh, God's enemies are my enemies. I hate them with perfect hatred. I am in opposition to them. Uh, I won't let them get away with it. Awesome. Good stuff, you guys. Anything to add before we wrap things up? Well, uh, I think you this, nailed it. I think I man, right? <laughs> <laughs> now, hopefully this is saving, right? I mean, I'm looking, I see the red button. It, it is. I mean, wouldn't that be great if we went through this and got hit record? <laughs> so uh, we'll be back next month, uh, Lord willing, if I can talk you guys into it next month. And uh, we will, our, our goal at this point is to release one of these once a month. And um, the next month theme is going to be on it is finished. And so we're going to look at that theme of it is finished. So with that comes, you know, what is finished? And furthermore, is there going to be more prophecy that needs to be spoken beyond the it is finished? And so how do we understand that when Jesus is on the cross, it is finished? Uh, what does that mean for our Christianity? What does that mean for Holy Scripture? Is there more prophetic word that needs to be spoken beyond the it is finished? And that's going to uh, go quite nicely with Good Friday and Easter and that theme of next month. And so we will be tackling that subject next month. And so there we go. So this concludes our first installment of the Three Padres and a Shepherd podcast. And uh, I guess we'll catch up with you guys next month, right? You know, I got I to say one thing quick. Um, I hope we have more people who listen to us then we've had people participate in this. That's my goal. <laughs> I think I jokingly said, I'm going to get my mom to listen because obviously my mom and then my mom is also a member of Pastor Newendorf's church. So we'll at least have one listener, I think. Carol Joy. I didn't realize that was a joke. I, that was <laughs> All right. Well, good. Good to see you guys. Take care. We'll see you guys next month. Okay. Happy birthday see you next man. month. All right. forgot about the music. That makes you happy, that music, huh? Of the three, this one is my favorite. <laughs>